You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. When you think about mountain biking and its locations, there's the staples that come to mind. There's the often credited birthplace of Marin County, the Mecca that is Moab, the birthplace of freeride on the North Shore of Vancouver, and the living and breathing mountain biking utopia that is Whistler, BC. But what is mountain biking's heartland? What happens when we remove the mountains from mountain biking? One quick scroll around North America on trail forks will tell you that mountain biking doesn't stop east of the Rockies. And so, what is left when you remove the mountains from mountain biking? It's my belief that the quintessential parts of who we are as mountain bikers remains. That thing that brings us all together when we're not arguing about wheel size or imba, the essence of what makes mountain biking and digging in the woods so important to our well-being. Maybe places like the Midwest of the United States. Places like Duluth, Minnesota. Is Minnesota mountain biking's heartland? I don't know if I can pin it down to just one place. Maybe that's what makes mountain biking so special. But one thing I do know is that this sport's heartland is not in places like Moab or Marin. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 33 of Frontlines. Before we dive into this episode's interview, I just want to remind you of the Frontlines MTB Book Club portion of anything purchased on Amazon after following the links on the book club page will go to support the podcast. The last recommendation is This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence by Terry O'Reilly. It's a helpful guide with some do-it-yourself marketing strategies. So if your budget won't allow an ad agency, then this book is a far more affordable alternative. You can grab a hard copy or a version for your Kindle at frontlinesmtb.com. And if you have a recommendation for the book club, then please reach out. Now on with the show. My guest is Hansi Johnson. He's the director of recreational land for the Minnesota Lands Trust. Previous to that, he was a regional director with the International Mountain Bicycling Association. Hi, Hansi. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking at Duluth today, we we see a ton of trails and what looks to be a, a very vibrant riding community. But I, I assume that there was a time before all that. When uh, when was that, and and what did Duluth look like then? Yeah, that's a good question. So you know, I think Duluth looked like a lot of uh, kind of Midwest communities as far as mountain biking was concerned. You know, early on in in the sport there were always mountain bikers here. I mean, as soon as the sport sort of started popping in the, the early to mid eighties, there were at, there were uh, folks that were riding and, and enjoying different trails here in the city, but they tended to be kind of more, you know, social trails and uh, old hiking trails or ski trails or, or things that you know, weren't necessarily mountain bike trails. They were, they were unplanned. They were somewhat maintained, but there was a local club that started uh, in the, in the late eighties. 
and uh, you know, started maintaining some trail, but it was by and large a social group that was just getting out and riding and, and enjoying their bikes. And so really, and, and you kind of said it there, your average mountain bike community at the time. Yeah, I think, you know, as far as the, you know, the explosion of, of off-road cycling didn't just occur in the mountain states, you know, it was, it was happening across the country and, and especially in the upper Midwest and the Midwest. And, you know, a lot of us, myself included, I didn't live in Duluth at that time, but uh, as a kid, you know, got a bike at a, I don't know, 13 or 14 and assumed I could just ride it anywhere and uh, tried to, and two things generally stop that one was me breaking my bike all the time because it just couldn't take take when i was riding it and two someone telling me no that i couldn't go there because uh there was some other sort of managed activity that was happening there and i think you know duluth was very similar that way if you if you knew where the riding was and you knew where you could go and you knew where you could you know do it in a way that you weren't going to get in trouble that's where you were riding sort of a don't ask don't tell policy but you know, Duluth is a little different than some of the kind of Midwest towns in the fact that we, we have a huge, just massive amount of open space within our city limits. So, you know, Duluth is this weird, long, thin city on the shores of Lake Superior, and it has, I don't know, somewhere in the nature of like 15,000 acres of undeveloped land within its its borders, which was a lot of kind of old, you know, industrial space or space that was going to be utilized for industry that just never was because the uh, economic collapse in the seventies. So, so there was long story short, there's a lot of places to ride your bike. IMBA launched their regional director program in, in 2009. And, and that's when you came on board as the upper Midwest rep. Um, how important was that role to Duluth and, and the rest of, of Minnesota and the Midwest? You know, really. And I, I, you know, of course this is coming from me who was the, 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 uh, the Midwest regional director. So I'm obviously a biased source, but I, I really, I really felt that the chapter program, the regional director program, the Imba ride center program were some really robust tools for us as Midwesterners. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we were dealing with weren't necessarily of the same nature as the mountain states, regardless of whether they're East or West, whether that was, you know, large amounts of like federal land, we were dealing more with, large amounts of really locally managed properties. So state, city, county kind of situations. And, uh, you know, we also have kind of an interesting situation here in the fact that we tend to have clubs in, in fairly populated areas. So we, we have bigger cities, bigger communities. We still have lots of available space depending on, you know, obviously which community you're talking about. But the, the main point being was the ability to kind of build capacity and create vibrant organizations that could really kind of advocate and create what they they wanted to do in this region was maybe even more of an opportunity. So those tools really, I think having the, you know, the the boots on the ground and the folks kind of getting out and and doing some really great instruction on best practices, not only on how to build trail, but how to build your organization and then giving them tools to kind of aspire to like the ride center was a big, I think it was a big push for us, you know, as a, kind of as the upper Midwest is concerned in the Great Lakes for sure. Mm. So something that, that you've mentioned in the past is that when you came on as, as regional director, something that you noticed was that none of the advocacy groups in the region were, were speaking to each other. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I made a very similar dis- discovery in my day job that there's 
over 1400 trail associations in the world and very few of them converse with each other. And, and so when we look at Minnesota, you know, now we see a ton of vibrant groups. We've got the, the Cayuna Lakes mountain bike crew. We've got cogs out in Duluth, Fargo Moorhead trail builders and the Minnesota off-road cyclists, just to, to name a few. And so what was different about those groups and others, you know, back when you kind of started as the regional director? Yeah, I mean, for one, some of those groups didn't even exist yet, so that that was that was one difference. But kind of to your point, you know, like, I, and again, I was working Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, you know, Missouri at one point, Illinois, and the Upper Peninsula as well. So, you know, one thing I really noticed, and I noticed this early on, not even in my advocacy role, but as a sales rep for a long time, I was an independent sales rep that drove around the the region selling Patagonia clothing and a bunch of other kind of outdoor related products. And I always found this like apologetic attitude from a lot of the stores or the staff I would work with. And I really saw that same thing happening in advocacy when I would go and talk to these different mountain bike groups is that, you know, they would almost kind of apologize for being Midwest. Like we don't really have mountain biking here. We we drive over to, you know, Colorado every year to get our mountain biking and we just kind of ride our bikes here. And, and I really have always felt as a Midwesterner that we've had a unique thing as far as any outdoor activity not just mountain biking but all of them and that it's not an apples to apples kind of comparison and that we really started to kind of need to take ownership of what we have and celebrate that and celebrate it in a way that is unique to us that kind of creates our own brand and so that intercommunication between clubs is really important because a lot of times i had to say hey have you have you guys heard what they're doing here and why and a lot of times I kind of get that, you know, that head shake. Yeah, of course we do. We know exactly what's going on. But but the reality was, and kind of back to your earlier question, you know, most of these trails were you needed to know somebody, you know. So you didn't really throw your bike on your car and drive over to Cayuna to go ride because most likely what you are going to find there was not what you wanted to find, you know, unless you happen to know the right person or even, even cable or, or a lot of these other kind of destination places around weren't necessarily destination and so that intercommunication and like literally using photographs for me, which was kind of my main tool was, you know, going and taking great photography of existing riding. And now instead of saying, have you been there? It's like, Hey, look at this. And, you know, started to kind of almost foster this, this desire for people to actually leave their home trails and go check something else out and then build on that from there to start saying, well, you could have that where you are as well. And here's the best way to do that. And eventually that started bleeding up to, you know, modern trail building practices and, and uh, construction and, and funding and building your organization and, you know, all, all of the, all of the rest, but that intercommunication, you're totally nailing it. And, and as far as doing that on a national basis or, you know, North American basis or worldwide basis, yeah, that, that needs to keep going. And that, that is one role that, you know, in did play at that point was really trying to pull those people together and create those those kind of cross-pollination moments. Now, let's fast forward to today. And what does Duluth and the rest of the region look like uh, from a mountain biker's point of view? Yeah. So, you know, it's like I said, if you reel it back 10 years as a mountain biker, for one, as a local, you most likely didn't travel to go try out different uh, places to ride. You might try a, you know, a few spots here and there, but mainly you were, you were more probably thinking about doing a true ride all the way out, you know, driving all the way out west or you know, somewhere, somewhere more mountain-based to do your vacation. So yeah, now all of a sudden you have a lot of really robust clubs that are all investing in their own trail systems 
but we're seeing a true I think economy that's developed around people actually putting their bikes on their cars and, and driving, you know, to different places to actually try it. So you're seeing a lot happening on the South shore of Lake Superior. Um, you're seeing stuff here in Duluth. You're seeing stuff, you know, Cuyuna as well. You're seeing stuff in even the Twin Cities to a certain extent has really started to, you know, blossom as a fun place to go and ride. And there's a lot of other places that are, uh, kind of on the radar now that I think within the next five years we'll all be sort of in that same conversation as well. But that's a really big difference. That's a that's a change for, for Midwest mountain biking. I mean the other side of it too is the amount of out of state plates that are showing up at all of these different places I'm talking about. And it's it's not unusual to go to Cuyuna and see plates from Western states or Canada or to see the same plates in Duluth or Copper Harbor and that's really rare. I mean, very rarely would you have heard of someone who drove from Utah to ride in the Midwest. So that's a, that's kind of a cool change. Despite mountain biking really being popularized by word of mouth, we, we kind of, a lot of mountain bikers put forth this image of, of not wanting to share their, their local trails. And, and we all know that somebody's talking because people are, are hearing about all this, this great stuff, but was there kind of some, uh, some concerns within communities of developing these destination locations? And was there concern that they were going to get too much traffic in them? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, and I think it's a legit concern. And, and one thing that I know I very much did as a regional director, especially in these early conversations was to like literally say, what, what do you want and why? And, uh, and really drill down into that because I think you have a lot of people that want to be the next best place for mountain biking, but they don't really understand what that, what comes with that. It's very romantic notion, I guess, is the way I'd, I'd look at it. And so to have those really hard straight talks with folks and say, this is what you really want. Here's what, here's what it really means. And is that still, you know, the overall positive to what you're trying to do with, with your mountain bike trail. So, and that, you know, that's a, that's where you get into your planning conversation, but you know, why, why do you want this? And for me, again, as a regional director, and even now just as an advocate for outdoor recreation in general, not just mountain biking, but overall, is um, you know what do you aspire to greater things with this with this idea or this project? You know if, it, if this is just about you riding more fun trails, then maybe that's all you're really aspiring to, and that's an okay thing, right? It's like if you just want to say we just want to make our trails better and we want to have better riding in our community, and and that's where we're going to leave it, then great. But if you're going to be a destination, that's a much different level of commitment and. Uh, and results. And some of them are really positive and some of them are, are negative, you know, like you're going to have more people. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what your goal is. But because of that, you may also bring some broad social and economic change to your community as a whole that, that might actually, you know, benefit from that too. So it's not an easy conversation, but it's, it's a valid one. Uh, the Duluth Traverse is a is a vision for a uh, hundred miles of of single track, and and how does an idea like that begin, and and what's the initial steps to to make it a reality? You know, for me, I, I had lived after uh, you know I'd, I'd kind of had a, a couple different times I'd lived in Duluth and and had left, and and some of that leaving I lived in Montana for a while, and then I also lived in in New England and northern Vermont for a while. And uh, I was very impacted by both in the fact that I was really, really loved to do long backcountry types of rides 
and also, you know, ski touring and, and all the things, just that, that, that extended experience. And uh, so when I actually moved back to Duluth to work for Patagonia and I was here, you know, a lot of the people that I kind of hung out with at that point, we were, we were still kind of, a lot of us were kind of Midwest expats who had left and come back and would talk about these experiences we'd had in other places. And so we started to do these long rides here in town, kind of linking together all these social trails and all the expanse of the open space we had in town. And, and nine times out of 10, they were total failures. You know, we'd try and ride ride X and it would invariably change because it was just too long or the trail didn't exist anymore or whatever, but it became an annual thing. And so a bunch of us were already kind of doing a kind of hodgepodge, you know, Duluth traverse back in the, you know, early 2000s and late, late 90s. So that, you know, that, that idea didn't, I don't think it germinated with any one person. It was something that was actually kind of happening organically, but the idea of starting to truly kind of invest in it and create it started to come from these other experiences in other places, you know, like really machine built trails was, you know, a thing that was already happening in the Southeast in the nineties. And it had already started to migrate into Northern Vermont, even when I was still living there. And you started to see intentional, well-designed, you know, beautiful trail being built in these places and interlinking other things. And so those things all came together with a conversation with myself and, a couple other folks from COGS, Adam Sundberg being one of them, saying, you know, we could do this here. Look at, you know, look here, look how our parks lay out. Look how our parks actually interact in our in our communities. And so that conversation kind of started organically in that regard. And then when I was given the job with IMBA, you know, I started to learn more about all these other best practices and other things and, and kind of learning about other communities. And then that's when the, the true Duluth-Traverse idea kind of solidified. And Adam was very good at kind of starting to tell that story to Cogs as well as he was the, the president at the time. And then we also had a very receptive mayor, uh, Mayor Don Ness, who was, he was willing to listen to us and uh, that kind of set it on its path. You've kind of mentioned a couple of things there and, and you talked about a little bit of planning, but, but organic growth. And so how important is active planning? And at the same time, how much does organic growth come into play when developing a mountain bike community. It sounds like, you know, there was some key partners within the community as well as politically, there were some key partners. I mean, those are opportunities that don't always come by and, and you need to jump on them. But but what what role does active planning and what role does organic growth in developing that come in? Yeah, so that's a that's a and there's that's where a little bit of the black magic comes into play, I think. But you know, I think there's as, a, as an organization, as a club, there's only so much you can control. You, you can control what happens within your organization. You can control, you know, your, what, how you work with your members and how you govern yourselves and how you kind of create your own vision. And so, the, you know, I think the, uh, the organic side of it comes from how the culture of your organization grows and what it wants to do and how it creates its own vision. So, you know, that, that right there was kind of, we got lucky on that from the cog side of it. We, we, we happened to have a bunch of really young, fun, energetic folks that saw the vision and, and wanted to create it and were willing to go to bat for it. But we also were lucky enough to have myself around as well to sort of say, well, if we're going to do that, then we also need to be building these relationships. And to a certain extent, that's kind of out of, out of an organization's control. Like you have to, you have to get people on board, right? You have to get the, the mayor on board and your parks and recs department and, 
whoever else is going to kind of be a gatekeeper to whatever it is you're trying to do. And, and you can, you can go out there and try and create those relationships, but you also have to have them in place. And, and obviously we don't, as a, as a club, we don't run those, those relationships. So that's a little bit unknown. That intention and that vision from the club also is what inspires those folks. So I think that organic growth kind of gets that in place, but having that vision and coming to whoever those partners are going to be and saying, we really see how this can play out and how we could, how it could impact us. Now we need your help to do a, a formal plan around it is really a, a, you know, that's where that, that's where that next big step occurs in a big project. One thing that we, we haven't talked about, and this might fall under the, the category of, of formal planning versus or organic growth and, and opportunity, but funding for these community projects is, is huge. And, and so where can it come from and how can a trail organization raise the kind of capital that, that's going to be required for, for something like uh, a 100-mile long traverse? Yeah, so that, you know, and again, every community is different based on you know, where they are, what country they're in, what, what state they're in, um, how big they are as a community, which is a, you know, a big deal. So you're going to have different strategies for funding in different places. That's just part of it. Some, some places like Minnesota do have some consistent funding opportunities statewide. Here we have our, our, uh, it's called the legacy fund, which is actually a, you know, a state tax that comes back and actually goes into a larger fund that helps pay for, trail-related and other recreational-oriented you know, oriented projects. So we're lucky in that regard. It's not easy to get, but it is there. But, you know, for us, what we found was the size of our community. I mean, we happen to be uh, roughly 90,000 people, but we're, you know, we're a tourism draw already. So we already had sort of an existing kind of major, I think Duluth last year had somewhere in the area of 4.5 million tourists come to town. And it's mainly just to see the lake, you know, like I wish I could say it was for all these other grandiose things, but the reality is that they like to come and stick their foot in the water and say, I touched Lake Superior. And, but what it, what it really did was it actually created a tourism fund, a pot of money locally within our city that the mayor had some discretion over on how it was spent. So for us, after we kind of really ground truth our idea and, and worked through how it could possibly work and brought in some other partners and sort of had the vision. And we actually sat down with the mayor and, and kind of pitched it. You know, one, one thing which I think is worth noting and is key for any organization is when we did that initial pitch, we didn't ask for money. We asked just to do it, which was possibly a little naive for us. But the fact of the matter was we came to the table bringing something versus trying to take something. And uh, especially in our community at the time, which has been, you know, kind of struggling with uh, just, you know, resources in general, that was a, a breath of fresh air for, for our mayor at that point where it was like, wow, this is a, you know, a group of folks that are obviously pretty organized and, uh, you know, are youthful and energetic. And they're actually coming to me and saying, this is what I, this, here's how, the, how we'd like to create change and we're going to do it regardless. We just need permission, <laughs> you know, not, again, being very naive. But um, he being very a great leader realized, you know, I do have some some funds that I can help them with. And not only that, he also made it sort of a priority for his Parks and Recs department to help us with them. And uh, which I think, while isn't necessarily tied to the idea of fundraising that you're asking about, it does cost money and it, and it is a resource that benefited us. And uh, so the, the actual cash that we were given early on from the city uh, was actually tourism dollars. 
but it wasn't even, it was mainly used to leverage other grants. So he was, you know, again, smart enough to say, I'm not just going to give you, you know, a hundred grand to go make, you know, 10 miles of trail or whatever that would result in. Um, I'm giving you a hundred grand to go leverage as many grants as possible to make as much trail as you possibly can. And, and uh, again, it came down to this relationship that had that tourism tax not been there, he probably would have found another source of funds that we could have done a similar thing with because he really believed in that early vision. But most, most communities are going to be looking at different, you know, different grants or local foundations or private donors and uh, getting into that, that idea of using those dollars to kind of maximize them. So uh, something that, that you said there, I think is, uh, I, I can see parallels and, and truths uh, to it for a lot of aspects with, with organizations. And, and, and that is bringing something to the table and, and contributing, not just asking for something. And I think I see that a lot with, uh, with sponsorships. When you go to companies uh, to sponsor trail organizations, there's always a, uh, you should sponsor us because it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, we can offer bike shops and, and companies and, and whoever they might be, we can offer them something in return. And I think that's, that's important on all facets, whether you're dealing with uh, government officials or you're dealing with, uh, with corporate sponsors or anybody, but we, we bring a lot to the table as mountain bikers and, and we can certainly uh, create value add for anybody. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think, I think the one mistake a lot of trails groups make and not just in mountain biking but in outdoor recreation in general is they think we think too small sometimes we can be very unintentionally we can be very selfish because a lot of times it comes from us as an end user we want to create more trails because we want more trails right and and even i'll hear i'll hear come out of folks mouths they'll talk a great game but that still is the end result and uh i really challenge groups to to think about how whatever it is they're investing in to think much, much bigger and how that's going to impact the community as a whole. Like what, what is the true result of this beyond just more riders? Like what, what is it going to do on the grand scale? And, uh, you know, I've said it many times, but I don't know what the Canadian, uh, the Canadian analogy would be, but, you know, our, our local groups are becoming like the next Elks club or the next Shriners, you know, or what, yeah, yeah. whatever that is, right. They're, they're literally social groups. They're not just a mountain bike group anymore. They're actually impacting change on a much bigger level than just mountain biking. And that, that narrative and that story is really, really important, but also really powerful when it comes to all these other folks you have to get on board. And uh, if they realize, okay, this is beyond just, you know, these folks getting on their bikes and jumping on the trail, this is actually going to make much bigger, broader change. And, and I also say that when, when I say that is, um, and some of the things I've learned since, you know, I've worked both with him by now in the role that I'm working in now is that it's very easy to say that, but it's also very hard to truly show it. So, you know, it's great to say mountain bikes will, you know, get more at, at risk youth outside or, you know, you name the you name the social right that it will create, but you need to be able to draw the direct line to what that is and why. And I think that's where like planning for me, you know, looking back on what we've done is we could have even been better at really opening the the net wider to even more partners and more folks early on to really kind of early on engineer how we wanted this trail to impact different communities and different people. And we've come back to that, like we've, we've gotten to that point where we're doing it now, but it 
took a lot longer than it probably could have. And, and I would say if, if I was looking at other communities as they're doing it, it's like saying, how is this truly going to impact health? And and draw that line to your partner with the hospital, right? And the program that they're going to use to actually gauge that and show that is occurring. And if you're saying this truly is going to get more people of color on the trail, then show me exactly how that's going to occur and bring those partners to the table early on so that they're part of that conversation early on. And too often I found, you know, at some point myself and other mountain bike advocates as well, it was really easy to tell a really quick, easy elevator speech narrative about how mountain biking was going to be good for everybody. But as soon as you dug under the surface, it's really hard to find those really, truly shining examples of where it is truly broadly making change unless you're intentionally doing it. What would you recommend to any groups out there? Planning is just so key, you know, and, and, and I had groups fight it like crazy. Like they just didn't want to deal with planning and, and planning is just, it's, the, it, it's what separates the, you know, the, the wins from the losses. But the groups that really get behind planning and get behind it early on and in all levels are the ones that are seeing the success. And when you go, especially here in the Midwest, and you go through all the, the places like you're talking about, whether it's Cuyuna or Duluth or it's, you know, Marquette or it's uh, Copper Harbor or, or any of those other places, it's, uh, their, their planning has usually been pretty dialed. So what do you have in store for 2018? What are you up to right now and, and what are you excited about? Yeah. So, you know, for me, my life really changed a lot when it came to, uh, you know, the job I went from with IMBA to working with the Minnesota Land Trust. And what I ended up doing was actually moving more from just mountain biking to all the outdoor activities in the city. So I was working with the cross-country skiers, with the mountain bikers, with the climbers, the paddlers, the hikers, just like the full, the full round. And uh, so I've, you know, I've kind of had to expand it now instead of just working with one user group to literally all the outdoor user groups in the city. So I have like seven different projects going on and uh, just, you know, 2018 is going to be awesome to see more of the Duluth Traverse get built. Um, we are at like, I think 95 miles out of the hundred. So we're, you know, we're getting down to those kind of final miles, but it's always exciting. You know, every, at the last, what, five years to see new trails popping up so you're always looking forward to the next one but then i'm also looking forward to all these other projects that we're doing like the ice climbing park and the the paddling trail and and everything else starting to kind of coalesce as well because i feel like that that broad front for us is really important to to move beyond just mountain biking and, and move into like the outdoor city as a whole you know i'm also looking forward to kind of like some of the changes that will occur within the organization cog itself and how they they kind of start to resurrect or reframe what they're doing and uh start thinking more about maintenance versus construction well hansi thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i really appreciate it yeah you bet thank you and uh if you have anything else just give me a call I wanted to highlight some of the things that Hansi said, and the first is the question he would ask any community looking at developing their trails. Why are you doing this, and what do you as a community want to get out of developing your trail network? Knowing the why of a project is as important as knowing the who of your organization itself. It comes back to that elevator pitch. Over this season of the podcast, we'll be hearing about a few major projects, and I want to peel back the onion on each of them. All too often, the public only sees the finished project, or in those negative situations, that big old rejection that we get from city council or the land manager. 
When we're dealing with major community changing trail projects and initiatives, I really want to dig into the minutia of what makes them possible and hear about all the hurdles that come along the way. If you have a project that you want to share, then reach out and let's discuss it. Another theme that we will keep discussing and something else that Hansi mentioned was the factors that an organization can control. Member engagement, governance, and creating a vision just to name a few. You can send me an email or audio file at frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. Or you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also stream the show on YouTube and SoundCloud. In mid-October, I was given the opportunity to pitch the podcast at the Mountain Equipment Outdoor Nation. It was a great experience, I learned a ton, and I met a bunch of passionate people, some you'll be hearing from in future episodes. And I'm happy to finally be able to share that Mountain Equipment Co-op awarded the Frontlines podcast with a $1,000 social media grant. You may have noticed the new logo, courtesy of Brandon Gallagher-Watson, that's just one of the few things that will be receiving an upgrade over the next few months. In order to keep the show alive, I do depend on donations from you via PayPal. You can find a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to the Duluth Traverse and the folks at COGS. Remember, you can also support the show by purchasing some reading from the Frontline's MTB Book Club page on the website. I'll be discussing the very first selection with some guests on an upcoming episode. So if you haven't read On Trail and Exploration by Robert Moore, I highly recommend getting it soon. I'll have a new episode for you on February 2nd. Music is once again by Lee Rosevear and production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.